Piranha. <laughs> More fish types, please. Piranha. Barracuda. Beluga whale. Uh, this is not fish. Uh, well, I mean, I was doing animals that live in water. Okay. Yeah. Salamander. Does that, does that include? Okay, I was about to say, does that include amphibians? The answer is yes. It does, yeah. They don't have to always be in water. A frog. Yeah. I'm Steve Gaynor, and this is Tone Control, Conversations with Video Game Developers. And today, who am I talking to but Brendan Chung, uh, proprietor of Blendo Games, maker of, um, most recently, 30 Flights of Loving, and currently working on Quadrilateral Cowboy. How's it going, Brendan? It is going well. I'm enjoying my Indicade so far. Yeah, I'm here in L.A. for Indicade, and uh, you are based in L.A. yourself. I am. I'm based in the same city that Indicate takes place in Culver City. Yeah. Uh, so I've I've come to your home base. Actually, we were in your um, indie development co-working space uh, last night, hanging out with a bunch of people that are in town for the show. Yeah. Um, so earlier this year, a bunch of developers, local in LA, we started our own little shared office called Glitch City, located in Col- downtown Culver City. And so just a bunch of us just hang out and make games all day long. Yeah. It, it seemed like a nice little... It's not really an office space. It's basically like you've got some couches and cubby holes and a fridge and then a, a couple of like long tables in the middle that people can basically like hook their laptops up and work on. And I guess there are a couple of workstations along the wall too. And Right, right. You just walk in, there's just a bunch of people, a bunch of nerds on laptops just making games. <laughs> That's what it looked like when I came in. I was like, wow, more nerds here than even I expected. This is a laptop world. Um, but yeah, you... Um, You've been making indie games for a while now. Um, before that, you were in AAA. Um, are you originally from L.A.? Or the L.A. area? I am, yeah. So I was born and raised in L.A. And I've uh, been here all my life. How do you like it? Um, I'm used to it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that counts I mean, as yeah. an answer. <laughs> uh, I mean, sure, there's plenty of things to not like, but there's just, there's just something about it that... that if I was to leave here, I think I'd miss it a lot. So yeah, I'm gonna stay here for a bit. It seems like there is definitely um, a lot going on in town at any given time. It's a it's a busy place. Yeah, I mean, there's always some movie screening or some sort of new showing something or some art show somewhere, and you know, there's always something to do. Yeah, yeah. So how long how long ago did you start in like game development for real? Like, when was your first game 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 dev job? Game dev job. Um, my actual job that paid me money was at Pandemic Studios. That was in 2005. Yeah. And how did you get into making games? Uh, that was with mods. Um, you know, Doom and Quake and Half-Life and things like that. Just making yeah. maps and just modifying bits and pieces here and there. And um, yeah, I mean, that kind of led to me getting a real paying job that let me pay my rent. Right. Uh, sounds familiar because I, I basically took a very similar path but I didn't I mean I did my own level design stuff um, you know off and on like a little bit as I was growing up like I made a Duke Nukem 3D level with the build engine you know when I was in middle school and I messed with the Quake 1 editor a, a little bit like but I didn't get serious about making 
game levels until like late in in college were you always like doing your own you know game dev stuff like projects and stuff when you were growing up or yeah i mean i think i started around sixth grade or so and that's when doom 2 kind of became a big thing yeah and so i was really into making doom 2 maps okay and for the longest time i tried to make stuff that was um story-based things like yeah. i want to tell a little story um and I kept on failing at it because Doom 2 was not made for that. You can only just make <laughs> monsters and shoot things. Yeah, there aren't even anything like uh, like like text terminals or anything, no. right? No, yeah. there's, there's very, there's literally nothing. Um, the closest I got, and this is really sad, was um, when you start a level, you see a guy on a teleportation pad and he teleports away. And then you enter the teleportation pad. And then you see a dead body. So the story is, <laughs> you and your buddy are like storming this place, and he dies. It's a pretty good story. <laughs> it at least sounds like the beginning of the story. That was the entire story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, it, free mod tools and stuff are super cool, um, but you're really limited by what the developers have done themselves or what they'll let you. You know, like, I mean, that was why I started using the fear level editor when I was in college was because I was like, well, they just released their the actual just tool set they used internally. So you can do everything that they did in the game. You know, you can add new dialogue and, you know, radio calls and, and all of the story scripting stuff, you know, all of the effects and whatever other transitions and stuff you could you had access to. So I was like, similarly, I want to make, you know, story based video game stuff um and yeah uh i i can imagine that wanting to tell a great story in the doom 2 engine was <laughs> a, a rude awakening when you were like wait a second it's challenging the story um, can be about how there's pinky demons here <laughs> that's, that's a story um but yeah i mean after the after half life one came out things kind of changed in that you yeah. suddenly had so much more flexibility and like things you can do um you know, I mean, one of my, I, I was really devoted to making, to trying to make something work, so I, I transcribed every dumb line of dialogue in the entire game, and I tried to, like, mix and match them in such a way to create new conversations. Oh, you mean, like, taking the, the, the spoken lines that uh, people said, yes. and then just, like, cutting them up? Right, right. Did you and achieve your goal? I kind of did. I mean, um, uh, one one mod I made was um, nineteen. It's called nineteen eighty six. It's for Half Life One, mm -hmm. and um, there's a part where you're riding the tram, Half Life One, and then you suddenly hear a teleportation, teleportation sound, and then suddenly, you, know, you hear a large clang on top of the tram, and then like footsteps walking on top of it. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, some monsters hanging out on top of it. Yeah, um, and just just the new like sound effects and screen shaking, and and then you hear a. a fart noise <laughs> <laughs> and then just by like clever just like picking the right lines you can make barney say like did you smell that <laughs> and like what is that it's like what's that and then and i mean even though the game was not made to do fart jokes you could totally do that you made it i made it you made it capable of I'm you elevated it to the level of fart I do classy humor only. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's something about 
all of your games have have a fair amount of absurdist humor in them. Um, and obviously that was something you were attracted to early. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, like, what did you... I, I, I think that um, I heard that you, you went to school for film and stuff, but then you were still doing... You were doing, yeah, mods and, and level design stuff while you were in college. Um, had it been your intention to get into making games as a job yeah um like when i when i was in high school i was making you know just tons and tons of mods at a ridiculous rate because i I really enjoyed it and i felt that this was like a viable way of making games for real you know instead of just making free stuff in my spare time as a hobby um so when I was in college, like I, I knew that I wanted to do game development, but at that time, game development was not what it is right now, where right. schools kind of have a bunch of programs. Yeah. Um, so I, I did the next best thing that I was interested in, which was film, because I, I, it, it was a field that I wanted to learn more about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, and while I was there, I just kept on making my own stuff and just learning how to do you know, more things in Half-Life and Quake 2 and things like that. Yeah. And I feel like uh, the stuff that you've worked on, yes, especially the like Gravity Bone and Thirty Flights um, stuff, is very um, very referential to film, you know. Um, but in a way that I guess I can recognize as someone who studied film in college. You know what I mean? Like like references more to like deep cuts from movies or references to how something was achieved in like a Hitchcock film or something as opposed to just like it's a Matrix reference <laughs> you know what I mean um, did you did you find that like as you were going through your coursework and stuff that it was directly affecting what you were working on um, you know in on your own game stuff um, yeah yeah I mean I think the way that I try to use film stuff is more about is more about using it as a shorthand for people. Mm-hmm. I think people kind of people watch a lot of movies and people like absorb a lot more of the conventions that they think they absorb. So when they see it's like a new language that they're learning, but they're not really aware that they're learning. So when you use this stuff, it kind of um, takes advantage of all those billions of hours that they've watched the movies and it kind of makes me you know makes the game a bit more uh it makes the game lets the game do more things basically right so did you so so yeah you said that um you know you did you did you start working at pandemic straight out of college um, pandemic was was a triple a studio that was here in the la area yeah and they made like mercenaries Right. Yeah, they made Mercenaries and Star Wars Battlefront and Full Special Warrior and um, right. you know, a bunch of other great times, Sabature and things like that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so right after college, I I was I was uh, determined to like, all right, I'm going to do video games. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> and then I spent a year living with my parents and just not doing anything because I couldn't get a job. <laughs> um, I just applied to basically every company out there and no one wants to hire someone who has you know, no experience making games. Um, yeah. Like, I had a, I had the portfolio of mods of, like, Half-Life 1 projects. Right. Uh, but apparently that didn't have uh, too much uh, 
uh, pool. Well, is that what you continued to do all your work in was Half-Life 1 and Quake 2? Um, Half-Life 1 and Quake 2, I played with Adventure Game Studio, yeah. Doom 3, and Duke 3D, I like that a lot. And, um, um, but in 2005, were you submitting a portfolio of Half-Life 1 and, and Quake 2 uh, maps? Because I can see how people wouldn't be super... Right. That's <laughs> a good point, it. Steve. You're right. <laughs> All I'm saying. Uh, by that time, I had moved on to Doom 3, which, okay. was, right. which had just come out like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was, it was, that wasn't that deep. Okay, that was cutting edge. <laughs> it was cutting edge. It was. <laughs> um, and does not continue to be cutting edge to this day, eh? <laughs> Despite the fact that you are currently making a Doom 3 engine game. I am indeed. But the Doom 3 engine is now like open source and also eight years old, so it can run on everybody's computer and you know so forth. There are advantages. I I I will defend it engines to the death, Steve. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, something that I've thought about even today is like I feel like I would love to license the Unreal 2.5 engine and just use it. You know? Because like you don't need very much <laughs> to yeah. make a game, right? Like, it, the, the, you know, the Bioshock 1 and 2 were both Unreal 2.5 games, you know, and it's like, I would just, I could, I could use that. I'm familiar with it. It can do all the stuff that I wanted to do, but, like, it's not open source, and Unreal isn't going to sell you a license for Unreal 2 anymore. Right. They're probably, I bet they don't even want to sell you an Unreal 3 license anymore for very long. <laughs> They're going to be like, why don't you just upgrade to Unreal 4? Uh, well, have you ever considered that they won't sell you an Unreal 2 license because no one's ever asked for it? <laughs> I don't know. <coughs> I mean, I know that there are still games, like, to this day, or at least this year, uh, that have shipped using Unreal 2, like a branch, you know, continuation or a branch of Unreal 2. Like, right. Uh, apparently the most recent uh, Splinter Cell, I think, is still an extension of, you know, the the whatever Pandora Tomorrow uh, tool set. Um, so, yeah, like, I mean, even for 30 flights, I use the Quake 2 engine because, I mean, the lighting in Quake 2 is still gorgeous and it does BSP rendering and that's kind of all I Yeah, yeah, really. yeah. Um, yeah, uh, that's something that I wish Unity had, was BSP. <laughs> BSP, uh, for those of you out there um, that don't know what BSP is, which is almost everyone, because there's no reason to know what BSP is if you're a normal person, um, it's hard to even, I guess it's hard to describe. I mean, I know that it stands for binary space partitioning, um, and it's basically just a, a way to render the geometry of a level that cuts everything up into portal, you know, like visibility portals and... Um, allows you to segment off space using using level geometry, um, and so it's it's really good for like occlusion and stuff because you can say okay, well there's a visibility portal through this cutout of BSP, so if you're standing here, you can't see anything that's on the other side of the geometry and so forth. Uh, Unity doesn't have that, so <laughs> occlusion is less enjoyable to deal with. <laughs> and well, because the thing is. <coughs> For a game like Gone Home, you know, like, something like Unreal or Quake um, or, like, uh, uh, Valve's engine, it's built for a game where you're a first-person view, you know, like, moving around space and stuff like occlusion calling is really important um, from a first-person viewpoint and so forth. But Unity is, like, a much more multi-purpose engine, and it was initially more, like, 
designed to do like in you know like an in browser plugin or like you know mobile or whatever so um yeah trying to make a high detail first person game in an engine that wasn't really built for it is its own exciting endeavor <laughs> so you just have to like wrestle with it and just manually put stuff in to not render things or well i mean it has it has an occlusion system, but it's all just based on like meshes, you know, and primitives and stuff. And it's just really, I mean, at least as far as we could tell, it was just really inaccurate. Like yeah. it would just, it wouldn't recognize that there was totally a full blocker of, you know, like meshes and stuff between you and the next room in some cases. It was just really fiddly. Okay. Whereas BSP being binary and everything is like absolutely all of the geometry is exactly where it is. Um, See, I missed that. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, so yeah, how did you then end up at Pandemic after a year in the parents' house? Yes, so, yes, I was just sending out resumes left and right, and um, uh, finally I made a, uh, a post on the site called shacknews.com. <laughs> I know that you know site. That? Yes. Uh, Chris Remo used to write for it. He did. And I, I posted in the forums there, and one of the guys said, like, hey, our company is, like, looking to hire designers, and is it interested? Like, send me a portfolio. So I sent a portfolio, and um, it worked out. Um, yeah. It turns out that I, one of my mods was this kind of squad-based army game, mm. and it was kind of, I don't know if it was before, like, maybe during the, the when Call of Duty 1 first came out, so the whole squad thing is kind of a new newfangled thing yeah and um and it turns out that they were making full spectrum warrior 2 at the time which was the squad based right. army game yeah so my projects kind of meshed with what they were doing and um, i got a job as a junior designer there did the squad based project that you submitted to them have fart jokes in it it did <laughs> i figured it might <laughs> what was it like okay all right i'll send it up to you so yeah. the first level is a boot camp, and so you do the whole boot camp. It's kind of a training level. Yeah. Second level, you at the end of the boot camp, you you go into a big airplane. So all right, you're trying this mission. So I like to tie things into the Half-Life universe. So you're being dropped into a black Mesa research facility. Okay. So while you're in this C-17 cargo plane, um, uh, it's all red. Uh, you're looking. You're sitting in the seat. And you're all gearing up. Uh, you're, there's a whole bunch of guys there, two of you guys away from you. So they're having a little conversation. One guy says, Hey, you smell that? <laughs> the guy says, Smell what? Then he farts. <laughs> and then the other guy says, like, Screw you, Hightower. Something like that. So, like, Oh, man. I mean, these are lines that were not made to do this. So, it was right. so like, I'm so glad that they just meshed in such a way that it made sense. Well, it was a cohesive joke. I mean,. You really lucked out with the fact that somebody at Valve decided that AIs should be able to detect that a smell happened. <laughs> is the smell like, do hound eyes smell bad? What is the, what were they even expecting the smell to be from? You know what, there's a lot of like, gaseous noises in the game. <laughs> so I kind of think that's why. There's also like, flapping noises of like, gases. So, Alright. Yeah. It, it, so it, maybe it was supposed to be a gas leak? Not maybe. a fart, but from a pipe. Uh, maybe. You <laughs> it, might be onto something there. I don't know. You could ignite the gas to explode a man or something. That never happened in Half-Life. They didn't have flammable... Not that I'm aware of. No. Maybe it was a cut feature. Could be. Well, because... Okay, so yeah. I I worked in on, on expansions for Fear. Um, and yeah, like... We had, you know, their source depot. And so we 
had all access to all of the um, the cut content that that was originally in the game, and I discovered a number of uh, features that I was not that had been cut that I was not aware of as an end user. Like there was a bunch of um, AI barks for a guy reacting to having a sticky bomb stuck to him, and it was they were going to have like. You know the mechanic where it's like you can stick it to the guy, and then there's a countdown, and he like starts freaking out, and his his buddies try to get away from him because he's going to explode or whatever. And they they cut it, but I'm like, oh, they went far enough with that thing that they had the voice actors record <laughs> stuck with mine or whatever. You know, a freak out barks. Um, I'm imagining the animations for those, and they make me very happy. Yeah, yeah. it 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 feels like one of the things that would have been a little bit more. Nolfy about that game if it had gone in, um, but yeah. Um, so your first your first job was on the Full Spectrum Warrior series. Yeah, um, I did the. Uh, yeah, so that was my first job making you know commercial video games. Yeah, and I made you know one one level during the middle of the game and the tutorial level. Okay. Yeah. Classic. Uh, <laughs> Classic loadout. Uh, the guy who gets to make the tutorial. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's even it to the junior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I feel like it's one of those things where it's shitty work to have to do, just because it's like, all right, it's the tutorial. Nobody really wants to make the tutorial on some level, but also it's actually really important. You know, like the first thing the player does in the game is actually it sucks to make, but also it's like first impressions kind of stuff. So. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like a lot of a lot of good designers get saddled with the tutorial. <laughs> no, I was very happy to get the tutorial. Yeah. Um, there's something exciting about I am the very first impression you get about this game. Yeah. Um, and the next game I worked at uh, Pandemic was uh, Lord of the Rings Conquest, and I did the tutorial for that also because yeah. somehow I became a tutorial guy. <laughs> And it, it broke my heart when the when it came up when it, the idea was floated up saying like we should we should let players give the tutorial. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> what are you doing? To me? <laughs> no, but it's my life's work. It's, it's my legacy. <laughs> People are gonna remember this tutorial, man. <laughs> they're gonna know how to conquest the Lord of the Rings when they're done with this thing. What was that like an RTS kind of thing? No. The, what is it like? You're thinking of Lord of the Rings Battle for Middle-earth, Steve. Oh, I'm sorry. Conquest sounds like it could also be about yeah, you're right. commanding your units. You're completely right. Uh, Conquest was, um, what if you took Battlefield 1942 and put it in the Lord of the Rings universe? Sounds like it might actually be cool. Um, if you uh, did it right. Just <laughs> That's being, all I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, it, sounds, it does sound cool. I, I think that there's potential for that. So it was like Battlefield 1942, except instead of airplanes, there was dragons? <laughs> we did have dragons, but they were cut up. <laughs> Wait um, a second. <laughs> but when you say Battlefield 1942, except it's Lord of the Rings, I'm like, all right, so instead of planes, it's dragons. If that's not true, uh, <laughs> you made the wrong game. I'm instead sorry. of jeeps, we have horses. <laughs> Are there horses of... in Lord of the Rings? Yeah, there's okay. horses. I don't even know. I figured it had to be some kind of like lizard that you rode or something cool. I don't know. I know, Steve, because I spent three years about <laughs> Lord of the Rings lore, so I'm pretty familiar with this oh, universe. You are on it for three years? Uh, about three years, I'm going to say, yeah. Holy fucked. Yeah, it's a good chunk of time. Yeah, that's a long... So you were you must have been on it from like pre-pro then. Right. Okay. Right, right, right. On the ground floor. So that's... I mean, so that's a 
that was, I imagine, I feel like uh, everybody's first full production cycle um, is really important, you know, to your understanding of, like, how games get made and what stages they go through and yeah. everything. What, what do you remember learning about, like, what sticks, sticks out from you from your experience during those three years of seeing a game go from, like, you know, paper to a shipped game? Yeah, um, I kind of feel that what, what, the, the games that developers want to make for themselves is very much not often in line with the game that will do well, will be like commercially successful, and sure. will kind of be a target for that market. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we started, we kind of, it was just kind of a grab bag of like, what do us as developers want to see in a game? Yeah. Which is like, you know, really... Um, Instead of a plane, you fly a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I wasn't there. Maybe that wasn't on the whiteboard. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was very much about like, you know, systematic gameplay, things like, you yeah. know, emergent things happening and, you know, planning out assaults. And I felt that what ended up probably would have been better was to just make a really polished, very um, straightforward, you know, beat 'em up game. Hmm. Just kind of like, you know, I mean, that's what I feel that's kind of what would fit Lord of the Rings better. And just like, I just want to like hit people with my sword. Yeah. And they did and, some of that, right? Like, I mean, not pandemic necessarily, but there were some like. Right. The, yeah. the EA titles, which right. were actually like surprisingly pretty fun. I mean, mm-hmm. considering the amount of time that they had, they yeah. made something pretty solid. So was the game. Um, when I think Battlefield 1942, I mostly think of like big, crazy, you know, 32 versus 32 PvP stuff. But were you were was the focus more on like a single player campaign or on multiplayer stuff? Um, so the game had a single player and multiplayer component. Um, I did two levels for single player, and um, I was kind of the multiplayer design go to guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the game, uh, production-wise, was kind of focused more towards single player. Yeah. So for multiplayer, um, it was just a bunch of us designers just kind of doing our own little ad hoc play tests every day and yeah. just seeing what sticks. And um, uh, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just saying, like, what? Yeah, was your work more focused on like single player or multiplayer? Because I mostly think of Battlefield 1942 as big, crazy PvP battles, you know? Right, right, okay. Um, Yeah, I mean, um, uh, the game was kind of steered toward single player. Yeah. um, Which was, like you said, is kind of... We felt that there was some kernel of something interesting in multiplayer, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think some of the numbers said that multiplayer, or single player, was just something that people kind of gravitated toward, and that's kind of what... Specifically for Lord of the Rings, or...? Because, I mean, there's always a big push to be like, oh, you have to have multiplayer you know, right. to get numbers or whatever. But I think, like, numbers-wise, like, I think when you look at what people do when they get a game, it turns out that a lot of people just never touch multiplayer and just do single player only. Yeah, and, and I think them. especially for something that's, like, a licensed tie-in, probably more people are like, I like this movie, I want to play a video game of it, and they just kind of want to hit the start button and go through the content, right? right? Like, there's probably some hardcore multiplayer people who are like, oh... You know, I'm interested in it because of the multiplayer feature set. You know, that's probably not the people they're expecting to be the main market for something that 
says Lord of the Rings on the cover, so that's probably why you're buying it, you know? Um, but yeah, uh, it, the thing that I found for myself and from other designers that I've seen is the first full production cycle that you go through, it's really easy to feel very like the sky is falling a lot of the time where you're just like, this is never going to work out, you know, like this, this project's so fucked, you know, it's so oh, everything's broken it's never going to be good, you know. Um, and it's, I think it's hard to get a feel for the stages of the life cycle of a game until you've actually like gone all the way through and gotten something out the door and been like, oh, that was really fucked three months before chip. And then three weeks before ship, it was actually kind of fine. You know, like yeah. it's, I think that if you haven't seen how those things can turn out and get a feel for whether something is actually a doomed feature or if it's just not done yet, you know, it can be really hard, I think, to gauge the, the difference. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially when you're like a designer, a level designer, basically, and um, you don't have the viewpoint into the project as a whole thing. And, um, you know, sometimes you don't know exactly what the art department is working on or what programs are working on. Yeah. So, uh, and then one day a feature does magically pop in that you were completely unaware of, and it is like, it is magical. It's a sense <laughs> yeah. of wonder of seeing something for the first time. It's like, oh my god, this game actually might come together. Right. <laughs> what was your favorite feature from that game as a designer? Because I think there's differences, right? Like, your favorite feature as a player might not be what your favorite thing, what your favorite toy was basically to play with as a designer. Right. Um, there was a cut feature that I really thought was funny and would probably not have worked. <laughs> what was it? Uh, but uh, the archers were able to throw a, uh, a tar bomb. Basically, hmm. they had a little grenade. Yeah. They could toss it and it makes it like splat on the ground, doing a little decal. And basically, uh, it slowed down players in it. So I was like, okay, so an archer has to fire a gun, basically. So you slow down people to give you a better aim. Yeah. So that's cool. Um, <laughs> I think, I forgot who put it in, but maybe our system designer, but he put it in so that the archer has a fire arrow power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he could shoot the fire arrow into the tar trap that you put down. And he made a propagate to, like, neighboring tar traps. Yeah. So, like, a bunch of archers can, like, gang up and, like, make this tar trap bonanza. And yeah. It's like this giant line. Um, it's like when you get a, a can of gasoline, like, make a big line, this kind of yeah. same thing. Um, and I just love that systematic stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, there's just something about that that I love seeing in games, and especially in multiplayer, which is kind of what I was working on. And yeah. There's something about that. It seems like that would be a really cool feature to have as a single player designer, if, for instance, there was like a siege scene, where it was like you knew that there were you were going to be flooding the player with enemies through like a few choke points or something mm -hmm. and give them this tool and don't say you have to do it or whatever it would be super useful to be like I'm going to put my tar traps here and here and here and when I see you guys start to come you know put the flame on that one or yes. et cetera yeah no, that seems really cool totally tapped into that whole tower defense thing that, right that's why those games are just safe I just play them for hours because like, I love making these elaborate plans <laughs> for these sieges that are coming to kill me for a second I was like oh you love uh, tower defense I didn't know that and then I was like oh you made Adam Zombie Smasher <laughs> Yes, you do love tower defense. <laughs> I don't hide I, that. I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you were, yeah, you were at pandemic for a while. Then, like, how long total? I was for five years total. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And then that company got bought and then got shut down and so forth. Were you, were you, what were you working on when that, when that studio uh, closed the doors? I was working on an unannounced title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do you have any good last days of the studio stories? Uh, yes, in that, um, uh, so one day I felt, I felt like I had some sort of like stomach pain. So I was like, all right, I'm going to leave work early. And then the next day I come in and, um, no one's there cause I come in kind of early. And then my boss comes and he says like, Oh, you left early last night, didn't you, Brendan? <laughs> you should go to kotaku.com. <laughs> So I go to Not Kotaku. you should check your email. No. no. <laughs> you should go to Kotaku.com. So I go to Kotaku.com. So it's like Pandemic Studios closing down. And they're having a meeting at 11 a.m. about it. And I was like, oh, how do they know about this before I know, before I get any email about this whatsoever? It's like, oh, okay. Um, yeah. So that was the last day. <laughs> Man, was that so? so the ground level people working there didn't know that the studio was shutting down until the day it shut down. And then it was just like, everybody go home today. Uh, there was rumblings that something was going to happen. Sure. Um, like there was, there was a, there was a faction of people who thought that we were like getting merged into EA, and, mm-hmm. uh, this other EA studio. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wasn't aware that we were getting completely shut down. So but they didn't even give you like notice. It was like, Please don't come back tomorrow. Or did, uh, did they give you like two weeks' notice or something? I'm not aware of that. Man, yeah. man, heavy. Kotaku.com. <laughs> Kotaku's on top of it. They're they they got all the scoops. Um. So yeah, you, but you had, unless I'm mistaken, you had been working on some of your indie stuff, or you know, like your own projects. Um, while you were working at Pandemic, were you actually like releasing things while you worked there? Or were you just working on stuff kind of sometimes on the weekends or whatever? Yeah. Um, so during Lord of the Rings Conquest, I started working on uh, Flotilla um, mm-hmm. in my spare time at home um, with the plan of kind of working on it um, after hours. And then when the game was in a releasable state, I would leave the company and just do this yeah. and give it a shot. Um, and then it turns out. And I didn't get a fulfilled up plan because the company got shut down. And, right. right? Uh, so they kind of threw me to the deep end of the pool and said, all right, you know what? I, this wasn't my plan. The game is not finished. Um, it's maybe like one third done at most. Yeah. But you know what? I'm, I'm going to give this a shot and see what happens. I yeah. have some savings and I might as well just burn through them while I'm still young and can. Right. Well, how, long, how long was it between the end of pandemic and releasing Flotilla? Um, let's see. I think the game in total took about six months. Uh, mm. Three months were at pandemic. Three months were out of pandemic. Mm-hmm. So about three months after. Yeah, yeah. That's a good turnaround. You don't have to live off your savings for very long, at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. So but in the chronology of stuff that you released, even non-commercially, Gravity Bone was available before that, and that was like an entry in an ongoing mod series that had gone over, like, multiple uh, engines and stuff. Right, right. Um, 
yeah, so I worked on that at the uh, sometime during development of Lord of the Rings. Mm. I just kind of wanted to make a first-person game because I like first-person games. Basically. Yeah, and Pandemic doesn't really do first-person games, so this is my right. outlet. And so, since you just released it as a free side project, it was just it didn't there weren't any issues because, like, when you I as far as I'm aware, at least you know at two K whatever, it was like uh, somewhere between frowned upon and a legal problem if you like worked on your own commercial stuff while you were working at the company or whatever yeah i poked around a little bit and found out like this is not gonna fly so, right yeah yeah it's the same situation yeah but gravity bone was was cool and it it felt like it was a totally um intriguing thing to be released for free you know because it it was like very lo-fi and on an older engine but an interestingly deep kind of strange experimental storytelling um uh production you know like i i because i found out about gravity bone from um from rock paper shotgun i think and you know they just done an article about here's this cool free thing you should just go download it i'm like all right sweet (laughs) and it was really interesting and and really unique um and i i haven't played any of the older titles that led up to it right but you had like so tell me tell me the story of the the game series that of these these not loosely connected but like directly they like the same universe I don't know there's there's this this series of mods and, and games that you've made and when did they start and what's the story behind that yeah um, so this is a series of game uh, 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 maps and games called Citizen Able and um, did you start it when you were when you were in high school or uh yes. Um so basically during like junior high and high school I, I was really into multiplayer. I mm-hmm. played Quake Two multiplayer ridiculously. Um and I <laughs> The structure of that sentence makes it sound like you were just absurd in the way that you played it. I was completely clownish in, in my play styles. Uh which yes. if that's true, wonderful. If not, don't disabuse me of the <laughs> the idea of you just being an off the wall Quake Two player that confounded wrong. everyone. There's nothing wrong with how I play Quake Two, Steve. <laughs> I didn't say there's anything wrong with it. It sounds very entertaining. It was very people loved it when I joined the server. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was really into multiplayer, so like I tried doing, doing tons of multiplayer maps, and um, it was hard to get traction on those because uh, getting people to play your multiplayer stuff is. is I don't know, I couldn't figure out how to do it. Yeah. So I figured, you know what, screw this. I'm just going to do single player stuff. Um, so that was my first Citizen Able map. This was in um, senior year of high school. And um, and it took off. Like, single player was kind of my thing that I wasn't aware of. And yeah. um, after that, I, I immediately made a sequel to Citizen Able called uh, uh, Bargain Bin Savior. And um, and that did that did well too. And um, so I just kept. I made about four of them throughout college and high school. And then I let it sit and gather dust because I got the real job that right. paid me money. Um, and then I I felt like making a first person game again because I missed it. And that's how Gravity Bone came about. Yeah, and it's a. I mean, between. Uh... I, I feel like the titles point at a very unique sensibility behind the games, right? Because like they're they're very 
kind of free associative absurdist titles for all of them, really. Um, and similarly, I feel like the tone of Gravity Bone and 30 Flights, and I haven't played the older games, but, you know, that, that universe, and it does extend to, like, Flotilla um, and, and Adam Zombie Smasher as well. Um, it walks like a very specific line, um, you know, between between some level of non sequitur, but also a very specific internal consistency with like the setting and this implied timeline, you know, um, and, and sort of shared aesthetic uh, uh, aspects between them. So like, how would you describe the, the, you know, like the identity of this, this universe that, that you, that these games work in? Yeah. I mean, I, I like it. I like it when ridiculous things are taken dead seriously. Yeah. Like I like it when, um, like in a comedy movie, you can't have two goofy characters. You need the goofy guy and the straight guy to to play off of each other. Um, so like when I when I try to make stuff, I try to make it the world is just dead serious, and you know there nothing is treated in a goofy way. But at the same time, there's tons of goofy stuff just happening. Um, but it's it's not played for laughs. It's like, this is the way this universe is. Like, stop making fun of it. <laughs> yeah, it's got. I mean, it's it's played for it's played for weirdness in a lot of ways. And then the weirdness is just funny and I guess wry. You know, like it's it's a it's a very dry um, expression of stuff that can be you know, pretty wacky conceptually. Right, right. Um, and I feel like it's hard to describe even the the setting itself. Like, what are the what are the aspects? Like, what did you draw from to make the setting for these games? Because it has sort of like a, a there's like South American, you know, kind of uh, place names and and stuff like that. Um, and it's also a mix of very mid-century stuff, but also futuristic technology in some cases. Like, how, how do you how do you even break down what the universe of your games is? Yeah, I mean, that's a good breakdown, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. <laughs> well, where did it come from? You yeah, know, like um, if those are the component parts, why are they? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of banana republic stuff. It's a lot of like dictatorship stuff. There's all like early space travel stuff. A lot of like pulp science fiction things. Um, I don't know. It's it, there's just something about that when you put something in this banana republic universe that you're able to get away with a lot more. And mm. uh, there's just something compelling about having a universe where having like really obscure laws is completely normal. Um, where having, you know, El Presidente be this overbearing character who ends up living in an iron lung. That's just, that's just how things are. <laughs> I don't even, wait, when, where did that nugget come from? I don't even remember the iron lung. In uh, Adam Zombie Smasher, I kind of, I, I indulge myself in having cutscenes. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. It's cutscenes, but I just like, I, I can't help myself. And so it reveals that... Um, these bunch of people they storm into the royal palace to do a coup d'etat 
and they find El Presidente in an iron lung, and then Buffalo Rifles kind of spring out of the iron lung and destroys them all. <laughs> so does do do all of these games like Adam Zombie Smasher is a top-down tower defense real-time strategy game, yeah. and Flotilla is a mostly turn-based I mean it's kind of turn-based it's turn-based real-time you can like pause real-time and it moves very slowly so it feels turn-based uh, I don't know no it's it's um, simultaneous turn-based so you do your moves and then right. turn the clock right 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 um, and then the the Citizen Able series are these first-person exploration puzzle-solving story games do they all explicitly take place in literally the same universe they do. Okay. Yes. See, I thought that they that they did. So, is it also a timeline thing, or are they all supposed to be taking place at the same time? Uh, I do have a super nerdy Google Doc <laughs> with all the years listed out Good. for all these years. So, Flotilla does take place in like the far future of the Citizen Able timeline or something. Uh, no, they they discover space travel shortly after Thirty Flights. Okay, and then. Um, that leads to the events of Flotilla. Yeah. I, I mean, I love stuff like that, personally. Just, like, consistent universe stuff between disparate works. Um, so I, I, think it's, I think it's really cool when, when a creator has something like that. I mean, you know, it's like... Um, you know, all the, the stories that William Faulkner wrote took place mostly in, like, this one community or... Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know, even something goofy like Blake Wobegon or something. You know, it's just like like a, a creator that says, I'm going to have this consistent universe that, that all my works take place in, even if they are individual works that, that stand on their own. Um, so are you saying that Katie's going to pop up in your next game? I mean, I, I would not be surprised at all if if the rest of the games we make are technically in the same universe as... Um, as Gone Home. But the thing is, Gone Home is essentially just in the real world. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it has different brand names because we couldn't clear them, you know? But, like, it, all, of the, all of the dates of the surrounding, um, you know, events that happen in Gone Home are just the normal world. The only things that are specific to it are, like, the characters and the concept of Boone County, Oregon, which is not a real county, you know? Um, and, and, and the very... You know, like, well, okay. We ve- in a in a totally non litigable way, <laughs> we very lightly imply that it also takes place in the same universe as Bioshock, and in Minerva's Den, again in a totally non litigious way. Of course, we very lightly imply that Bioshock takes place in the same universe as System Shock. So, in theory, <laughs> if you were to make a lot of logical leaps, all of those games. <laughs> Uh, have been linked together by our ridiculous retcon. <laughs> so you're saying Katie's going to visit Citadel Station? It that I think that there's unless unless some some serious cryogenics happen in there, I don't think that the actual timeline lines up. All right. um, I'm just throwing it out there. But like, so I, I I've probably broken this down somewhere else. Whatever. Um, in Minerva's Den, we. It came from it came from this idea that uh, J.P. LeBreton, who I think you know, yeah. um, shared with with me that he and Paul Helquist, um, 
at uh, at, at Irrational on Bioshock One in the design pit. They just had a bullshitting conversation with her. Like, Rapture has this high technology. It would be cool if the high technology from Rapture led to the the high technology of you know Shodan and and stuff that that led to System Shock. Like, you know, the advanced technological stuff they had down there like kickstarted you know um that research on the surface and that someone had like gotten the programming from you know or like some of this technological stuff from rapture back up to the surface and that had led to that and everything so i was like when it was coming time to do dlc i was like all right let's just do that (laughs) and and so there's a there's a super geeky knot of it started from there's computerization in rapture because they have these bots that fly around and do target acquisition and they have like motion detecting doors and turrets that have, you know, all this friend or foe processing. And there's some kind of computerization in, in Rapture clearly. Um, so that's why we decided to do the like computer core. And then it was like, your mission should be that the computer wants you to get its programming out of the city so that it can basically be, um, uh, it's a self, you know, um, so it can survive, essentially. Um, uh, and so, you know, then it was like, all right, we'll do an AI thing, and it'll be like a primitive AI, but it'll do the... It can do voices, <laughs> like Shodan, classic, uh, doing voices in, in a shock game. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, the, the, the thinker, the computer that's nicknamed the thinker, is nicknamed that because its designation is Rodan, spelled like the artist, R-O-D-I-N, mm-hmm. And that's why there's a thinker statue in the thing, and they nicknamed it the thinker because of that. And that stands for the Rapture Operational Data Interpreter Network, um, which going up to the surface would be shortened just to ODIN, O-D-I-N, the Operational uh, Data Interpreter Network. And Shodan stands for the Sentient Hyper-Optimized Data Access Network, idea being that the acronym just if you know morphed over time as... Anyway... Um, in Minerva's Den, there's the world's first video game, in theory, because uh, there's a video game down there, and it was, like, from the 50s or whatever, so it would be. Uh, and it's called Spitfire. I don't know if you found it when you played it, but it's, like, a vector graphics, like an asteroids kind of thing, and it's playable and whatever. The idea being that it was, like, a super simple representation of, um, like, a fighter plane in World War II shooting down enemy zeros or whatever. Um, so in... Uh, gone home we wanted to make a Super Nintendo cartridges uh, that we put in the game and so one of them is called Super Spitfire and the publisher is CMP Interactive which stands for Charles Milton Porter uh, because he survived and made it back to the surface Uh, and there's a couple of other little winks like the the airline that uh, Katie takes to go to Europe we never named the airline, but their logo is an 80s brand update to the airline that Jack's plane crashes into Rapture in. Just, you know, so, in a completely unenforceable way, oh, yeah. <laughs> theoretically, we, we have caused all of these universes to, to coexist. Porter um, becomes Super Nintendo programmer. Well, <laughs> the assumption would be that because the the art is like a very kind of like Japanese style art. So what right. I think happened was he did start a computer company, whatever, when he got back to the the surface, and it's been like 
50 uh, years or something. Sure. So probably the company that he started licensed the IP for that game to a Japanese company, which then made a Super Nintendo version I love it. of it. Whatever. I love this stuff. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I love it. <laughs> so that was all for you, Brandon. <laughs> and for our 20 listeners. Um, but I mean, yeah, that's one of the things I fell in love with was um, the early Bungie games did exactly that. Yeah. Or they all, like, Pathways into Darkness, Marathon, and uh, Halo, uh, Halo and Myth, they all have these weird tendrils that all connect each game to each other. Myth and, like, even connects into... Does. I didn't know that. And like, you could just, like, they have the marathon story page and the hate and myth story page. And I just spent like a week just like pouring over every single page, just reading every single weird theory and connection. It's like, oh my God, this yeah. is what I want to do. Well, so I discovered also that they weirdly did that uh, with, with the Monolith games. Um, I don't know if all of them are connected, mm-hmm. but I know that Fear and Shogo Mobile Armor Division mm-hmm. take place in the same universe. Because um, I was working on the Fear expansion pack, <clears throat> and the main enemy dudes that you're fighting are... Um, are the, the corporation is Armacam Corporation, and they make right. like the military robots you fight and, and so forth. And you can, there's some backstory about Armacam that's like, they initially were um, making, they, they were contractors making aerospace stuff and they like built technology for um, low orbit satellites and then they started getting military contracts and so forth. Um, and when I was working on the expansion, I started doing some research. I don't even know why I was reading it, but I was reading like a Shogo Mad fan page because it was an old thing, and it, and it was like, it had all the lore, because it was like a far future kind of anime-inspired thing, where it's like, they're mega-corporations and stuff, and it's like, there are these three more mega-corporations, two I don't remember, and one, which is Armacam Corporation, and they, uh, they, you know, they, they were, they have become a mega-corporation that's like a militaristic uh, uh, supplier, and... Oh, that's right. That's actually... Sorry, so I, so I got it backwards. In Fear, it's just like Armacam makes military stuff, and you're like, cool, whatever. And then in the lore in Shogo, it's like they, they, they made like early aerospace contracting stuff, and they made satellites, and then they started making like space stations, and now they're like this, this global megacorp that, that does all this stuff. And in Fear, you know, being 100 or 200 years before Shogo, you go into Armacam's headquarters... And there's a model satellite hanging in the lobby <laughs> that is never referenced directly in fear, but I'm like, that's so fucking good. <laughs> Fuck you guys. <laughs> this is my favorite. Um, yeah, the, exactly. Tendrils. Someone's doing their story battle jobs. Well, I mean, the, the, same, the same guy, you know, Craig yeah. Hubbard wrote the story for both of those games and the Lone Lives Forever games. So, like, yeah, no, I love it. I, I talked to, to Craig for this podcast. Um, a few weeks ago um, just about all that stuff and it was really well I didn't actually talk about that I didn't geek out that hard directly to him about that particular thing but just talking about yeah like having this these connections across properties and stuff cool um so yeah obviously it's something that 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 you're interested in which is basically like building this 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 meta construction out of all of these yeah. these things. I mean, there's some, there's just something fun about like you're making a game, but at the same time you're just building something even bigger than that, and they all just kind of. And it's just fun to work on, you know, yeah. as, a, as a writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, tell me about like 
So you the something that you know I, I touched on it earlier, but you've made a lot of different kinds of games, mm-hmm. and in just a few years, right? Like right. Flotilla came out in two thousand nine, maybe. Um, I'm gonna say ten or so. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah and I mean it's still twenty thirteen. So, right. you know, in in the last three years, you've released yep. yeah, space combat game, zombie tower defense, <laughs> first person story game, um, and you're working on another more like systems focused first person um game right how'd you do that <laughs> like i so because the, the thing is like it's really fucking hard to know how to make one kind of game right right and you you're are you a hundred percent a solo show you do everything in all of your games except the music in like 30 flights is that yeah right? um i don't do music and I, uh, right now i'm contracting out porting uh quadrilateral cowboy which is mac and linux i see yeah um but right. other than that i do the art and design and programming and yeah so yeah because that means that you have you must have a serious programming background as well as i mean not like not somebody who necessarily would get paid for it but you at least You've got enough programming to make all of these games happen. Yeah, I learned it by just pouring over, you know, John Carmack's Quake code and just like, what happens if I change a 7 to a 2? And um, that's basically how I learned programming. (laughs) Did it just expand out from that? Yeah, yeah, basically. Man. I mean, I guess it's, it's true. If you spend enough time with it, you can understand how it all talks to each other, I guess. Maybe. I mean, at least... Some of it, right? Like, cause, and, and if you're looking at John Carmack's code, I guess, as far as I'm aware, he makes his stuff like really readable and clear, relatively speaking, even though they're like highly complex. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just took a very, 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 very long time. And yeah. I'm still like, you know, struggle every now and then with like, because my, my math background is not that strong. So right. Like, for Flotilla, just figuring out how to make a missile intercept a moving object was like a week's worth of like Google. So I was like, all right. Yeah. I mean, did it did it start from that place of like, okay, I'm making maps for, you know, Quake or or Doom or whatever, and I'd really like it if this part of the functionality worked differently. So yeah. then you find it in the code, and and then you went from there to like changing more significant things. Yeah, definitely. It was just like uh, like first person maps is my my the thing that I do basically, and. Um, it just got to a point where I started making more and more stuff, and then I started to, like, I really want to change this thing, and but I just don't have the, you know, the MT doesn't have the input to do that thing. You know, I want to make this thing flash this color instead of that color, but it's hard-coded to be brown. Um, <laughs> because. Because, yeah. And, yeah, so that, that kind of pushed me to, like, all right, I'm going to dig into this thing that I know nothing about, and I'll just, you know, muscle through it. Yeah. Um. Well, so right now, yeah, you're working on on quadrilateral cowboy, and that's kind of, I mean, it's 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 obviously within this universe, but it's it's not a direct extension of Thirty Flights, right? Like, it runs in parallel conceptually, but it's not a, a continuation directly, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a sequel to Thirty Flights, right? Like that. Um, yeah, so 30 Flights and Gravity Bone were very were first-person games, but they're very controlled, scripted experiences. Yeah. And um, they're... So, there's something that I think is, is interesting and valid, which is they're both... And I, I think that this is true of Gone Home as well, and any good Bioshock level, is that, in effect, it's essentially 
a linear experience that is just motivated through a nonlinear space, you know, like through whatever means you, you encourage strongly the player to probably take a pretty, you know, um, reliable path, but not just by saying there's one hallway and you walk forward down it, you know? Um, and I kind of feel like that was, that was how gravity bone and 30 flights were in, in most parts of them, you know, where you had a space, but you also had a goal and you knew you know how to navigate right. to it so it was essentially linear you know it wasn't an open world game in any sense of the word but it also wasn't like a corridor experience uh i mean i'd say yeah i'd say bioshock definitely fits that and but i would i'd say 30 flights basically you only have one direction to go a lot of the times so, yeah yeah i mean i, I mean, kind of cheat in some way like the airport you have like three passageways but they all, they all end up going magically to cut yeah but i still feel like there are parts of it where it doesn't feel like like you were just holding down the W button, you oh, know? Sure. Right? Because like I feel like, for instance, Dear Esther is pretty much like the linearist of linear game to the point where like my finger literally like got numb on the W key just because I'm like holding it, you know? Um, right. And in Thirty Flights, like you walk into the bar at the beginning and you can look around in the bar and you have to figure out that you need to turn the the photo to get into the secret passage and you yeah. go down those stairs and then there's the little room that has the ammo and the maps and everything and it's this little you know it's, it's just a room but there's also this knot of okay i'll look around at this stuff before moving on and like when you go from the apartment to the roof you can like walk around the 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 wedding reception and and all that kind of stuff and so it is very linear but even within it there's like linear backtracking you know where it's yeah. like you go from the apartment up to the roof and now you have to turn around and go back into the apartment it's a different kind of experience that way and everything so like so yeah when i when i play shooters um one thing that kind of bugs me is that sometimes i feel like i'm just going forward for the sake of going forward like all right because that's what i need to do to finish the game um so for me for 30 flights i try to make it a priority to like to make sure that the player always knew that like, I'm going forward because of reason X, Y, Z. Yeah. Um, like, I need to go get this thing. Or I need to go meet this person. Or I need to go get, you know, whatever it is. Right. Um, so I, I, I'd want to make sure that you're not just holding W just because that's just going to make the game finish eventually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the story behind the making of 30 Flights is actually... It seems like there is there's been a pattern with a number of your games. I think this was true of Adam Zombie Smasher as well, where it you had started it at some point and like gotten a certain way into development of it and then like shelved it and moved on to something else and then came back to it later. Is that is that true for both of those games? Yeah, yeah. So Adam Zombie Smasher started off as a Xbox Live indie games title. Mm. Um, this was the first game I ever programmed from scratch. Yeah. <clears throat> Meaning I put all of my code into one giant file, which you shouldn't do. If you're <laughs> learning programming, don't do that. <laughs> they should be separated into smaller files. Right. Um, so, I believe it. <laughs> yeah, do that, Steve. And uh, uh, yeah, so that started off and it, you know, it, it didn't work for technical reasons and design reasons. Um but then I went back to it and made the, the final game. And the same thing with 30 Flights. It started off as a prototype for Gravity Bone. And then I shelved it because the prototype was uh, had some issues. Um, then I came back to it when the Idle Thumbs Pop Kickstarter happened and uh, revived the prototype from the dead, basically. Yeah. Did you did you work on Flotilla between the first version and second version of Adam Zombie Smasher? Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So something... I actually... I, 
you were there for it, but I think I've also uh, relayed the, my 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 side of of this to you before. But the first time that we were ever in contact was when Flotilla came out, and I bought it, and I had a crappy old netbook, and I you know I looked at the at the the game. I don't I don't know if I even looked at the specs. I just kind of looked at the game. And I'm like that would run on a netbook, so I put it on my netbook, and. I it did run fine mostly, but I found that in some cases it would get really chuggy, and so I just like emailed contact at blendogames.com and was like, "Hi, I bought this. I'm trying to play on my netbook, and is there like a netbook mode or anything because it runs bad?" And I think a few minutes later, I got an email back that was like, "No, we don't have a netbook mode, but it should run okay." Or you know, like we had just a basic little exchange, and. I was like, oh, that's cool. I got like a personal response right away. And then in the meantime, I had played it more and realized that it was when I panned my camera over like a big planet in the background that had a bunch of like transparency and, and stuff. Um, and so I wrote back and I was like, oh, uh, actually I found that it's these planets that are causing my my uh, frame rate to be really bad. Uh, if there's anything I can do about that. And you're like, I'll see what I can do. And I think like within... 24 hours at the most, uh, you would release a patch for the game that just added a checkbox to the options that was turn off planets. And I was like, sweet! Indie games are fucking tight! <laughs> like, I wrote the guy who made it, and he just put in an option for me <laughs> and patched the game the next day. And I turned off the planets, and the game ran great. It was cool. There's a game option made just for Steve. I know! Amazing. Not even in a game that Steve made. <laughs> <laughs> but it, just that like that freedom and ability and responsiveness of like yeah. yeah it's a dude making a game on the PC so it doesn't have to go through cert right you know like it's not going to break anything so it doesn't need a ton of of testing you can just push a patch and there you go um and and you're free to yeah just like get an email into your inbox and be like oh I'm the guy that made the game I can see there's an issue I'll just write back to this guy and you know like that was from from my perspective, as somebody who was you know still working in AAA stuff, it was just a really uh, cool interaction to to have. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's so easy to make a patch available to people, so there's no real reason not to just make whatever feature people want to put in there. Really, yeah. um, if you want to turn off like every other star, yeah, I could totally do that. <laughs> it's totally doable. Um, and then yeah. Uh, Additionally, uh, I was on the Idle Thumbs podcast, and then, yeah, as you, you mentioned briefly, um, what, two years ago now? Um, yeah, yeah. Idle Thumbs did a Kickstarter because um, they had been offline for a while, and they wanted to, to bring the, the podcast back, um, and I wasn't involved with it. You know, I didn't live in San Francisco anymore, but... Um, were they just were they fans of your games or did you guys know each other personally at that point or what? Um, I think we'd said hello at some point at GDC or something. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, we had. I think they were aware of the. They had played so much stuff before. Yeah, um, and and so they approached you with the idea of we're doing this Kickstarter. We'd like to like release a game. You know, give give certain give backers of a certain level a game. You know, that was like made for the Kickstarter um, and asked you to be interested in that, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it was in just late 2011 or so, they contacted me and said, like, you know, we're bringing back Idle Thumbs. And I was, I was so jacked for that. Cause, like, <laughs> I, I, I really like Idle Thumbs. So they, they were thinking of doing small little games. So I, I could totally do that. You know, I have a, like a 
graveyard of dead prototypes. I could totally revive one of them and like spruce it up a bit. Yeah. Um, and that's how I had, you know, one of my prototypes for Gravity Bone was 35 to Loving, and that's how that came about. Uh, I mean, where does the title for that come from? I mean, because where, where did the title of Gravity Bone and 30 Flights come from? Yeah, uh, so those games ended up being... Um, so Gravity Bone originally went through a lot of iteration before it became, you know, what it is. Um, a lot of the early prototypes were much more about traditional um, shooting guns and grappling hooks and sweet hacking tools, whatever it is. Um, and one of the early ideas was this legendary weapon called the Gravity Bone. <laughs> <laughs> what did it do? What uh, you it? know what? I don't remember what it did, but it was like, oh man, this is such a great name for a gun. I gotta use this somehow. Wait, it was a name for a gun? This this sweet, sweet weapon. That oh, you I thought you meant it was an ancient weapon, like it was a bone. <laughs> a deadly bone that caused extreme gravity? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that could also work just as well, honestly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the game went in, it, it went in a different direction yeah. than that. Um, and so for 30 Flights of Loving, that was a... Uh, it does fit... I'll start this by saying that I do think it fits with the game well. Sure. But the origin of it was um, a misheard lyric from a Violent Femme song. <laughs> Which song? Uh, it's called Out the Window. Okay. Uh, the real lyric is 30-something nothing. Huh. But then when I heard it, it's like, 30 Flights of Loving, this <laughs> sounds great. I gotta use this somewhere. Yeah, so what was, I mean, what was your thought process in making 30 Flights? Because I feel like it's a really unique game, you know, just it's a really unique experience, and it does seem to draw on a lot of, um, a lot of, of technique from, like, film, you know, and, um, like, there's a lot of kind of film editing and chronology language in, like, Every few minutes, it's there's something you know that that is surprising in that way. So like, what I guess so so something something that I think is when talking about like the tone of a game or you know like maintaining the identity of a game or whatever. A lot of it is about like the boundaries you know of like what is okay to put in and what isn't you know. So like, did you have what what was what was your internal rule set for? how you you played with like the player's perspective and and editing and cutting and stuff in in 30 flights and what was kind of off off limits for you or whatever yeah i mean when i start a project i kind of like to set my ground rules for like all right i'm not going to do this this and this for this project um for 30 flights it was um no dialogue no text and no cutscenes. These are very loose rules because Thirty Flights does have cutscenes. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. So I, I, didn't, I bent the rule a little bit. Yeah, sure. Uh, but generally, those are my. It also has some text. I mean, the text is, is in the cutscenes. There is, like it's the same. one that's like you know, the uh, sharpshooter or whatever. But... I doubled down on breaking my rule. <laughs> on but it's also, I mean, I, it comes from a place of you say I'm not going to do this at all, and so it means that any of it that you do has to be like very, very. Yeah, intentional, yeah. right? So I mean, when when it makes those decisions like really hard, it's like, all right, these are one of my rules, but like, is it worth it to break it because I think this is going to be kind of interesting? So you kind of like have to make a you know way your your what what is your moral metal? <laughs> right, Do you want to include this thing or not? Um, yeah, so those are my rules, and um, and basically, I just wanted to 
play with the the things in film that I've, that I've always wanted to play with. Cause like, I think when I see games that say like, oh, it's so cinematic, it's so um, you know, it's like a movie, and they are like movies in that you kind of watch them and you know you watch this scene of this this cool scripted thing between two people talking, and it's fine. I I do enjoy playing those, but I wanted to see like if I what. What can I do with playing with these with this language and seeing how how if if it is at all possible to integrate it into the moment to moment gameplay? You know, um, like can I make a cut happen and you're as you're walking forward? You know, right? Instead of just during a movie, right? Well, and there's a lot of playing with um, with chronology, right? Like with playing scenes out of order as well. Yeah, was that something that how how much of the game was planned in advance? I guess like was was there a lot of um, kind of uh, improvising or like re reshuffling things as you were building it, or or was it all? Did you have like the shot order essentially uh, ahead of time that you ended up shipping? Yeah, um, I generally do not have some grand vision when I make something. Um, so the, the, generally the way I like to approach stories is um, I kind of start, I like to start at the ending mm-hmm. and then kind of work backwards from the ending and figure like, all right, how did the people get to this right. place? And then what led to that? What led to that? What led to that? Yeah. Um, and then once I kind of get some foothold in that, I like to go back to the beginning. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, how does it start? Because I, beginnings are just, I like, there's something about beginnings I like working on. Um Maybe it's because I did so much tutorials. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then I kind of figure out like how, all right, how does this beginning and basically the two threads eventually just kind of snake around until they tie together somehow. Right. Um, so yeah, it is a lot of um, just kind of going by feel. Yeah, I don't really have some shot list or some uh, master document of um, the entire universe and what happens yeah Um, just kind of like how like once i see things on the screen it kind of becomes clear like oh obviously xyz should happen right yeah yeah exactly it's like you're reacting to the first steps that you've that you've taken you're like oh sure then of course you're gonna yeah take the next three steps because you're headed in a a clear direction yeah the, the same thing i had with level design and that we'd always do paper documents and I find that once I start building a level, the level just goes off the rails. Like, oh, obviously there should be a giant tunnel here that leads to this underground passage that right. connects to that area that didn't have a connection before. Um, so that's why I just like building things out. And that just kind of makes it totally obvious. Like, oh, the next step is totally clear now. Yeah, yeah. And I I'm, I know how that goes. <laughs> like, like, in Gone Home... There are secret passages all over the place, and there didn't used to be. <laughs> like I, I built the the first, you know, like the IGF demo, the first like hour or whatever of the game, and had people play test it. And it wasn't until after I had sent that out a couple of times, we'd sent out versions of that. That Joel Burgess, who works at Bethesda, he was the lead level designer on um, Fallout Three and I think Skyrim, um, uh, was like. We were at QuakeCon, actually. Um, nice. And, uh, you know, Bethesda Softworks, id, whatever. Um, Zenimax Media. 
uh, and and I was talking to him about the playtest, and he was like, "Oh, what if there were secret passages in this weird old house?" And I'm like, "What if there were?" Huh? <laughs> and so at that point, you know, it, it was like, "Okay, well, we have a bunch of stuff established. Like the library's here, and the parents' room is here, and the foyer's here, and so forth. So what connections could?" logically be made between those spaces that already exist mm -hmm. you know um did that require you to like shift the entire world over five feet to make room for passage no um the the only the only connecting passage that we hacked in was between the parents bedroom and the library like okay. the one that goes down there and that just fit into some negative space that we already had um so what does that mean like a hack do you mean like you well, the the walls that are now secret doors just used to be walls. <laughs> so, like, you know, we had to, like, cut a door into that and then build the passage in the negative space to connect it and then, you know, set all that stuff up or, or whatever. But, you know, it was like, oh, there could be this walkable space between these two disparate parts of the house that didn't have a connection before. So we'll lay that in. And, and the thing was, because it allowed us, like, we knew what story we wanted to tell in that part of the game... But we had too much of it, basically, like, for the amount of space that we had. And then the idea of secret passages and secret compartments allowed us to say, oh, we could extend the player's critical path to, like... Because the last few, like, audio diaries of that part are very linear. They describe, like, one night in order. So if you get them out of order, it's way worse than getting any of the other audio diaries in that part of the game out of order. Because um, it's just like, oh, I read the third sentence instead of the first sentence in this sequence and you just don't have context for it, right? And so, yeah, the secret passage, secret compartment thing allowed us to say, oh, we can extend the player's crit path without actually adding more rooms that we have to decorate right. and also say, you have to find the note that tells you where the secret passage is to find the note that tells you where the secret compartments are to find these things in order and, and so forth. But yeah, it, it's one of those things where you see enough of the picture that you know how you could um, you know, either draw pieces together or extend what, what you have in a way that you couldn't have planned for. You yeah. know? Um, and I think, yeah, you, just, you have to be open to discovering those kinds of things along the way. Right, right. Um, but that's, it, why, that's why I don't write anything down. Right. <laughs> it sounds like you're open to finding those opportunities to the degree where you don't start with anything except <laughs> except that. Like, is it literally like you just start, you open up the level editor and start building stuff? I mean, do you, do you even, like, sketch out level layouts and stuff like that? Um, generally not really. No. Well, yeah. Because um, I have so much trouble going straight to 3D, like, without even having, like, you know, a whiteboard sketch of the layout of the, the rooms I want to work with or whatever. Well, I mean... It does require a lot of redos, so you're probably right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was at I was at Eric Chalky's GDC talk. He was talking about another another world, mm -hmm. and he was talking about like yeah. So I made this cool intro sequence where this guy in a laboratory gets zapped, and he disappears, and then I had to figure out where he went. <laughs> I was like, oh, I love you. This is great. Well, the intro of that game is great. It is. It's super evocative. And he had no idea where he went to. It's like, all right, now I've got to figure it out. He knew that he was a particle scientist that drove a Lamborghini. That's right. <laughs> to his lab. Uh, but yeah, God, and his solution to that being, well, I guess he and his desk are in water. Is so good. 
Um, yeah, and I imagine it's the kind of thing that either you would have to be a crazy genius to like plan it out from the beginning, or yeah, it's like you put yourself into a situation where you're like, uh, I don't know how I'm going to get myself out of this. <laughs> Guess we'll see, and then a really crazy like yeah inspiring moment comes. You've got to be scrappy. There's something about that I like. <laughs> So now you're working on Quadrilateral Cowboy, which is hard for my mouth to pronounce, apparently. Everyone's hard. Quadrilateral. Yeah. Luckily, most people won't be saying it out loud. You'll mostly see it in text on the internet. Yeah. Um, so what was what was the impetus for, for Quad Cow? Which quad I'll Cow. Call it. I like that. Um, uh, so, like, I... I kind of learned programming on my own, and I find that there's something... There's something satisfying about programming. There's something, you know, you're basically learning this new language that can create things that didn't exist before. Yeah. You can, like, uh, and there's, I want I want players to kind of feel that same, um, I don't know, the same feeling. Um, but it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, the game, because the game... Like, break down what the game is, like, what it's about. Oh, right. Uh, so the game is a 1980s cyberpunk hacking game where big corporations hire you out to um, sabotage their rivals and steal documents and do other awful, awful things. Um, nefarious deeds. Nefarious deeds. And basically, you are the guy who has to learn, you know, how to use this computer terminal and to hack security cameras and open doors and things like that. Um, so throughout the game, you're kind of learning this very basic syntax of, uh, of this very light kind of scripting language to like, you know, turn off this light for three seconds and then wait for two seconds and then open the door for three seconds. And then they'll give you this little beeline through this facility uh, without getting caught by security systems. Yeah. And so it's very much about the, it's a more like... In some ways, it's a more literal, like, real-world representation of what hacking would be like in that you're typing commands into a, uh, a terminal window as opposed to flying through cyberspace and shooting projectiles at black yes. ice or whatever. Yes. Um, uh, I, I try to gravitate more toward the typing because there's, there's something... I mean, it kind of gets that same Hollywood hacking feel of, like this cool dude in sunglasses typing the keyboard he slams the enter key and then like stuff happens it's yeah like, you could totally do that in this game yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of what i was kind of aiming for what do you so it, it feels so i've played some of it and it feels much more um it has a much more traditional structure to it than i think any of the first person stuff that that you've done like even you know i feel like the gravity bone stuff like was more granular, like more smaller chunks of different weird things. Um, what, like, was it just a challenge that you wanted to take on to make like a more you know fully systemic kind of long form game? Yeah. Um, so like every game I do, I try to do something like out of my like kind of out of my comfort zone. Um, like Flotilla was my first game. And I had never done a turn-based game before. I have never done a tactical game before. I've never done 3D graphics before. So <laughs> I figured this would be a good first game for me. Um, what, did, did that use like a Quake 2 engine? What engine uh, did that use? Flotilla used XNA. Oh, okay. All right. um, so yeah, for so Quadrilateral Cowboy is a first-person game, but you know, I'm I'm what I grew up doing was more kind of story-focused, linear experiences that told the story. And this is completely not that. It's yeah. all just based on mechanics. It's all based on, you know, 
um, letting the player play with cool toys, which is something I haven't really done before in a first-person game. So yeah. we'll see how this goes. <laughs> well, is it going to have um, some of the stuff that seems like it would lend itself to the to the tool set and the setting, which is like there are data terminals in the world that you can hack to you know read people's emails and stuff like that like is there is is storytelling you know in the environment or like explicit storytelling alongside the gameplay something that is something you want to do with with this game or is it all about just like the the mechanical experience everything i've played is very much like you are interfacing with the mechanics but there there isn't very much in the way of like evidence of other people in this world or whatever Right. Um, I mean, that doing stuff where there's real world building is just something that's kind of uh, in my DNA. So I feel like that's just going to happen anyways. Right. But um, generally, for Cartel Cowboy, that's not something I'm specifically trying to do. Um, like lately, in the past uh, couple of years or so, I've been kind of gravitating more toward games that tell stories that kind of emerge from the mechanics. That's something I'm. I'd like to get into more, much more, um, like things like you know, when people do like spelunky daily runs, they have these like elaborate stories, like oh, and then this happened, and this happened, and you know whatever it is, um, you know, Daisy, Dwarf Fortress, things like that. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of this is going to be my kind of stab at making a game that kind of goes along those lines as opposed to more um, controlled experiences. Yeah. Cool. Well, you've been at it for a while, and you, I assume, are are. Do you think this thing is going to be out next year? I don't know. Do you have any yeah, idea? Yeah, I'm, I'm training for it next year. So. Okay. All right. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for talking about all of the different stuff you've worked on. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan, especially of 30 Flights. I think it's really, it's really forward-looking um, and unique in a way that is significant. Um, structurally and about the way that the player understands how the game works and what the story is because of all the visual language and it's uh, it's a really inspiring game and if you dear reader haven't played 30 Flights of Loving uh, you should and it's on Steam and it's on blendogames.com and you get Gravity Bone just in the download Um, I mean Gravity Bone is also separately available for free but if you buy 30 Flights of Loving you can also access Gravity Bone from the menu which is really cool to see the progression between the the two games um so yeah good luck with the rest of dev on uh on, on crazy hacking game <laughs> and uh yeah thanks for hanging out cool thanks dude.